Let us hear the word of God and turn to the gospel according to St. John and chapter 13. And we'll read verses 1 through 17 and then verse 34. John chapter 13, starting at 1, verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. And now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And then verse 34, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Let us join together in prayer. Almighty God, we sang of your majesty and of your glory. We sang of how worthy you are to receive honor. 
We sang of your holiness and how immense that is. We sang of your greatness. And we affirm it, Lord. We affirm that you are a creator who is greater than our world, greater than our solar system, much greater than the galaxy of the Milky Way in which our solar system finds its place. Lord, you are greater than the deepest depths of space and of the universe. Our chief regret is that we choose to limit you by living within the bounds of our earthbound imaginations, that we are consumed with anxiety about material things, that we are focused on the trivial, like things as if we were in a soap opera or participants in American Idol. Please, dear God, send us your Holy Spirit that we may think great thoughts today that we will be lifted out of the bounds of our trivial lives and seen within the context of your immensity and of your majesty. Oh, Lord, rim our lives with glory and with the grandeur that we sang of this morning. Let us travel through the scripture passage with a sense of awe and of wonder uh, for the great king who came from his father's throne and was back on his journey to that throne, that great king wrapped a towel around his waist and washed our feet. And so we ask for great thoughts that we may live serene lives that are filled with the tranquility of your majesty. In Jesus' name, amen. Shando and I, Shando, my wife and I, went to a symphony opera the other evening. And it was so interesting to watch the instruments catawailing in competition with one another before it all started every instrument doing its own thing in this dissonance and cacophony assailing your ears. Shando was quite irritated by it, and I was in one sense appreciating it. And then the leader of the orchestra stands up, and the whole orchestra falls quiet, and they give that middle C on the violin, and every instrument tunes to the middle C of the main violin. And then the conductor comes on. And suddenly every instrument is not competing anymore, but is harmonizing. And the, just the wonder of the music overwhelms and the majesty of the symphony comes out in such a great way. It reminded me that when God created man, he created man to be the image of the Trinity. The Trinity where the Father gives glory to the Son and the Son's giving glory to the Father and the Holy Spirit's glorifying the Son and they honor one another and work together in harmony and out of that comes the immense creation and the even more immense salvation. Just spectacular, isn't it? And God said, let us, let us make man in our image. 
male and female, he created them to be in harmony. And then that perfect harmony was shattered, was it not, by their disobedience. And God their friend became God their judge. These companions became competitors. This life of delightful supply and security became a struggle for existence and the security of having all their needs met and of living in this place where everything was provided now became a struggle for existence. So a deep neurotic anxiety gripped them and amiable best friends became antagonistic rivals. Can you imagine what Adam and Eve said to each other that night? I wonder if they even spoke to each other that night. For the first time, I'm quite sure cuss, cuss words were heard in the English language. And Adam was muttering about Eve, and she was saying, hot shot, you're not so hot yourself. And in Genesis chapter 3, God described the effect of the disobedience, and I paraphrase it, he did it in these terms, he said, a power struggle has been set in motion by these events. You have dethroned God, gone into the God business for yourself. Each one of you is your own authority, and now you are going to begin clashing around the question, who's the boss? The wife, he said, will desire the old harmony and instead her husband will exercise power over her. As far as I can see, God is not prescribing men's rule over women in that scripture. He is describing the power struggle as a result of placing the self in the place of God, the effect of this blasphemous idolatry. And now the essential question about the relationship is, who's the boss? Power was a non-issue when they lived in harmony. Who cares who's the boss when you are together, dedicated to doing the will of God? But now power became the issue. Words that were meaningless took on deadly intensity. And I invite you to listen to these words as a checklist in your own heart and mind. See if you recognize any of this stuff in yourself. Words like control, intimidate, manipulate, dictate, threaten, bully. Coerce, stage manage, impose, maneuver, and all of those together mean terrorize. They're all now part of human interaction, all with this terrible effect. And if there was a faint echo of any of those words within your heart and mind that you see to any extent lesser or greater in your behavior, it is most likely because you are caught up in this power struggle as a power seeker, which is your natural approach to life outside of Christ.
Well, the consequence, consequences were immense, and they endure to this day. Who's the boss? This is the perpetual struggle of the human race. It lies behind every war that is being fought right now, wherever that war is. It lies behind every feud, wherever those may be taking place. It lies behind every family squabble. It begins with babies when they're about six days old, <laughs> doesn't it? It reaches a zenith in adolescence. And from there, it soars to new heights, becoming more subtle, sophisticated, and manipulative. If it's not dealt with, it takes off and becomes stratospheric. It is present like a magnetic force in every human being. It provides the gravity which keeps this idolatrous world hanging in its space. Not surprisingly, therefore, you find it as a thread throughout the gospel narrative. You see, the disciples too are engaged in this search to be boss throughout the gospels. This theme is seeded like a landmine. And there is the rumble of competition among the disciples. Let me trace it for you. First time they do it behind the back of Jesus. The big mistake because uh, Jesus knows what's going on. Luke records in chapter 9, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Which of them will be the boss? Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. And then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. And in Mark chapter 10, Jesus begins to prepare the disciples for the trauma that is brewing and about to boil over in his trial and crucifixion. Listen, he says, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. Now, you think that would sort of make the disciples forget this who's the greatest bit. But in this extraordinary incident where Jesus is describing Rome's gruesome power to execute him by crucifixion, all they hear is going up to Jerusalem and flights of a wild imagination propel them into the gravity of a different universe. All they can think about is Who's going to be in the place of power when we get to Jerusalem? And this power is of such strength that it filters out everything else. And they are so obviously fixated with the idea of power. Jerusalem, the seat of power. And so the story continues. The very next verse. 
Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. What is your request, he asked. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right hand and the other on your left. Doesn't that astonish you? But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with a baptism of suffering that I must be baptized with? I think they still didn't hear. Oh yes, they replied, we are able. And when the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. So Jesus called them together. You know that the rulers in this world lorded over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, the sons of Zebedee, also known as the sons of thunder, are not happy with this in the least bit. Oh, they may be thinking, he must be kidding. And so they get mom to weigh in. Now, who can resist a mother, they think, especially when she pleads on her knees? And so Matthew records this incident. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. And again, when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. So Jesus calls them together and he goes over it all again. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then in Luke 22, when Jesus indicates the betrayal, they are like a flock of pigeons cooing away about their innocence. But something sinister enters the conversation and from the subject of innocence they take the stratospheric leap to start arguing like vultures on the prowl as they compete. So listen, 
The Son of Man, says Jesus, will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. And they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. You can hear them twittering away. Was you? Could it be you? Could it be you? And also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered the greatest. Now John chapter 13 opens the scene against a backdrop of power. And so it says, Jesus, knowing that he had come from the Father and that he was going back, and that the Father had give him, given him power over everything. This is like a chapter heading in a book that sets the context for the entire chapter. And so does John engage our attention with the idea of power and frames the entire episode. In prehistory, he says, Jesus came from and is returning to the Father. And in this historical moment, Jesus, knowing that all power was given into his hand, so we can travel back and observe the scene in the light of this, and what are the disciples doing? Well, they set up the room, and now the time has come that has been set, probably sunset, and they all arrive at the door, and they are in a rush to get the best seats. They're jostling each other and digging each other in the ribs and muttering to each other. And they dash in in such a hurry and get seated around the table wanting the best place that they overlook something. And what they overlook you may consider trivial, but it is actually essential in that society. They ran right past the bowl where normally a slave would be washing their feet. Nobody paused to say, let's do this. They dashed to the table. It's essential because, you see, they are wearing open sandals, and they're walking on unpaved roads, and the roads have been traveled by camels and sheep and cows and donkeys and horses, and all these animals do what animals do in the road, and so the dust is mixed with dung, and their feet are not only dusty, they smelly. I once sat in an airplane where somebody from the outback took his shoes off. I can still remember the smell to this day. And that was in an air-conditioned airplane. So imagine what happens now when... 13 people take their shoes off. <laughs> and you know, they were lying down. So here, he, James had his feet right near to Peter's head. And I can just hear Peter muttering, this clodhopper of an oaf. What does he think he's doing? And maybe he even thought something as destructive as this. I hope it's gangrene. <laughs> And Jesus lets them stew. And he shares their misery. 
as if nothing was wrong. And then all of a sudden he gets up somewhere along the line. We don't know precisely where. Maybe at the end the other gospel says during the meal. And knowing that all power had been given to him. Knowing that he was going to the Father. Well, just think what he could have done. He could have blasted those disciples. He could have humiliated them with his words of authority and of power. But instead he takes off his outer garment, dons the apron of the slave, and proceeds to wash their feet. Hey, the feet of these bickering, competing, unlikely unlikable disciples at that moment they were not in the least but likable and even the feet of Judas the one who he knew would betray him and what do you think goes through their minds where did they look if you were not just an observer in the room but sitting around that table and Jesus came to your feet where would you be looking I don't know you'd have your eyes closed but you would be blushing red with shame would you not you couldn't bear to look at anybody else around that table, and they were all looking away as well. And Peter once again speaks and reflects what I think all of them were thinking. Never, he says, you will never wash my feet. You can wash the feet of all these other lily-livered disciples, but I'm standing up to you. You will not wash my feet. And he goes into hostile competition with the other disciples. Oh my goodness. Peter has said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And now he still wants control. He's acknowledged Jesus as Lord, but he wants to control Jesus. And he wants to be in control of his own life. Well, then says Jesus quietly, then you are not part of me. Well, then remonstrates Peter, not just my feet, but my head and my hands as all as well. I'm going to be this noble guy who understands your ministry to me and not just my feet. Oh my goodness, Peter is this insistent jerk at this time, still in control and wanting to exercise his own power. And it reminds me so much of the image that looked back at me out of my mirror this morning. Because that power tussle is one that we will never be rid of on this earth. And it is actually a power tussle with Jesus, is it not? Is Jesus Lord or am I? Can I follow him on my terms? Can I dictate to him you've got to wash either nothing or everything? And so we are suddenly not just observers in this upper room. We are participants around this table. So what is this foot washing? Well, you may think it's just being nice to someone. You know, you send them some flowers or a nice note or a, a bit of money perhaps in their need. Give them a back rub and a massage. 
lift their spirits a little bit, being nice, you know, encourage them in their tiredness. Well, Jesus was being anything but nice to these disciples. He was embarrassing them and humiliating them. They all felt terrible as this thing happened. He was dealing with their stubborn sin by humiliating them with his example. It was counter to everything that they stood for. It was counter to their culture. It was counter to their hearts. He was judging their lust for power. And in doing that, he was empowering them in a different way completely. You see, kingdom power is all about empowering somebody else. He stated the truth over and over. We traced it. We made our way through that landmine-strewn landscape of the Gospels and saw four different times when he addressed this issue. Reminds me of a community well which was drilled in Kenya, and we were told about this. And the agreement was that the village would take care of the well and each family would donate one goat so that they had the resources to fix the well if it broke. Well, a year later, these folks visited again and the well had been bust for four months. And the villagers were thrilled to see these people come back and said, now you can fix your well. <laughs> And they said, uh, no, it's not our well, it's your well. Do you remember the agreement that we made that every family would give a goat in order that you could fix, you could fix your well? Ah, they said, we heard you, but now we understand. That's exactly what Jesus was doing here. You are leaders. You are to empower, you are to don the apron of a slave. Now they understand because they've seen it. And isn't it fascinating that Jesus ends this discourse by saying, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. By this that you are empowered to wash feet. Nothing more. You're not empowered to order people around. You're not empowered to assert your authority. You are not empowered to insist on your own ways. Just to wash feet. You are not to control. You are not to manipulate. You are not to manage other people's affairs as if you knew better than they did. And you are not to maneuver people into positions that you think are better for them. And once you've submitted to Jesus completely, that means you gave up your own terms and made this unconditional surrender. Now you will keep slipping back into the ways of control and manipulation, but every time the Holy Spirit will jog your conscience and create such a shindig in your conscience that you won't have any peace with God. 
And you can ignore the fuss that he makes, but the longer you ignore it, the more scar tissue you get over your conscience and the harder it is for him to get back to say to you, you are on the wrong pathway. You should be serving, but you're trying to control. And so the Holy Spirit will rub that comfortable scab off your conscience and the pain may be searing. But Jesus will tenderly wash the wound as he invites you to a new beginning. Let me see if I can dredge up some examples of what this foot washing would look like. If there's a bunch of men together and somebody starts telling feminist, anti-feminist and sexualistic jokes or maybe belittling his wife, you may just ask a simple question. How does that jive with being loving as Christ is loving towards the church? Cause everybody to look at their feet and hum and haw, won't it? When we see some greed that has become idolatrous in our community, do we not need to stop and ask the question, how does that square with laying up treasures in heaven and using your wealth to glorify God? Let me wash the feet of the church this morning. This will make some people feel very uncomfortable. Many people consistently arrive late for church. How does that square with reverence for God and worship as being a completed thing that our worship leaders have been led in the Holy Spirit to lead us through? What does that reflect on your fellow worshippers that you come in late and have to disturb people and I wash your feet. Let me wash your feet in this way. There's some people going through such personal issues and they know that there's a ministry called Stephen Ministers in our church that will provide you with a confidential companion who will walk with you and be there to ask questions and research scripture and pray with you and some people just say no i i'm a private person well this is a private companion to help you and ultimately when you get it all down what do we discover we discover that jesus by giving his power away multiplied it 11 times over Every one of those disciples now said, we had heard, but now we understand. And they went and practiced this sort of honesty, this sanctification, the washing of the word for sanctification. And they taught other people to do the same thing. And we today stand in the pathway of the power empowering that Jesus started in the upper room. And every one of those 11 came and laid the power back at Jesus' feet. And we too, do we not bring whatever empowerment we have 
and lay it at Jesus' feet and say, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. So we conclude with these two thoughts. You who have never been bathed by Jesus. Did you notice what he said in the scripture? You disciples here, you do not need to have your hands and your head washed because you have been bathed. You've come and made the total surrender. But now as you walk the dusty, dung-filled roads, you pick up that pollution so you need your feet washed regularly. And if you've never been bathed by Jesus, oh, the Holy Spirit is crying out to your heart this morning. If you will strip away all the accoutrements of our sophisticated Western world and go down to the essence of your heart and hear the cacophony of noise that is going on down there that you want to ignore and say it doesn't matter or it's just normal. Well, you know, you know you need the harmony of Christ there. And that will only come with an unconditional surrender. And today, today must be the day that you make that surrender. And for us who have been so washed by Jesus, we bring our dirty, mucky feet to him again. In particular, our want of control and of power and we surrender it to him once more and take up the apron of the servant and of the slave and then oh then the radiant glory of jesus himself fills your heart and your imagination and what a day of freedom when you lay down control and give it to jesus and the need to be in control dawns in the springtime of God's eternity. What a day. Today, let us pray together.